Guess who? I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, most scientific, most skillfulest fighter in the ring today. Mr. T. It's Muhammad Ali. Perhaps the greatest boxer of all time. At least in his day and age, he was probably right when he said that. Talking about being the, the baddest, most, I don't know about the scientific part, but he was really, really good at what he did. Muhammad Ali. Pretty controversial figure if you know anything about him just because of the things that he said in the past. That's subject number one. Subject number two, if you will. This next guy, you'll never hear anything about him again, but he was making headlines because his license plate unabashedly says, I'm Ohio originally denied his request, stating that it was a vulgar request and that no sane human being should ever put that on their license plate. But he took it to the courts, and by means of the law, <laughs> he was able to get his license plate approved. His license plate now says, I'm God. Subject number two. Subject number three is actually a variety of subjects. This third group of people and these first two people have something in common. Let's see if you can figure out what that similarity, what that commonality is. I love these next people. I don't know who they are, but I love them because they provide me endless entertainment. Here's the first one, 3A, if you will. This young man's about to score a touchdown, <laughs> a goal. <laughs> or maybe not. Let's find out together. Blocked. Except as this guy celebrates, the ball goes in. One more time, just for yucks. Let's just watch what happens here. This proud goalie bangs his chest like I am an amazing goalie <laughs> while, the ball, while the ball sneaks in. This next guy, this next guy is doing the all-too-common V. And it's interesting because they're, they've done studies on blind people who've never seen anyone do this before. And yet when you win something, it's pretty common that we have this kind of ref reflexive action that says, I did it. I'm the winner. I don't know what that it's about. But this guy clearly thinks... He's winning. Is he? Let's find out. Riding on one skate, sliding in only to be beaten by the guy right behind him. Oh, that's painful. Painful. Here's another one. 3C. By this point, I think you've already figured out what's happening here. Here's another guy who's about to celebrate his victory. Take a look. And he loses. <laughs> oh, did not look behind him. This last one hurts because I think she's probably about your age. I feel like it's one of my kids who is just about to celebrate her win. Here goes. Here goes. Hands up. Oh, that hurts. The afterburners. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure by this point you've figured out what the commonality is between these three subjects. Each of these people and various people have a manifestation of pride, a certain arrogance about them 
that for, I think, most of us, whenever we see pride in its various forms, we kind of recoil at that. It's repugnant to us. I mean, think about this. How easy is it to see pride in everyone else around you? But when you think about it in your own life, it's not so easy to see. It's easy for, for you to identify it in your friend, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your teachers. But when it comes to looking at pride in your own heart, a lot of us are pretty oblivious to it. And yet, when we see people that are arrogant and proud, there's something inside of us uh, that wants a cosmic justice. I want God to humble the really proud guy, that loudmouth dude on the team who's varsity, he's really good and he knows it, and he tells everybody that he's really good. There's something inside of us that says, yuck, I hate that. God, humble that guy. I don't want him to do as well because he's not that great. There's some imperfection. No one's perfect, we might say. So why do we love when we see humble people and hate when we see proud people? Maybe it's because we know that even for the best among us, we know that we're all still profoundly broken. We're not perfect. And one of the things we're going to look at today is how Jesus deals with our imperfection, with our pride. And it should not surprise you that how he deals with it is both gracious and firm. Turn, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 35 through 45. That's what we're studying. Even though your, your worksheet says we're going to be actually studying backward, it's not verses 35 to 34, it's verses 35 to 45. And today is not November 27th. Today is actually November 17th. We're not going to do this in the future. Today is November 17th. It also happens to be Abby's birthday. Who's in the back there? The reason why this is so funny is because Abby's been sick this week, and so I'm sure she did this when she was medicated very heavily on Dayquil or NyQuil. She's just typing whatever. I'm so she got my name right. I'm happy about that. I'll take it. Happy birthday, Abby. Grateful to have you. Grateful to have you. All right. So before we look at the verses 35 through 45, it's important that you know what's a, what just took place because it really does set the stage for what you're about to read. Here are the verses preceding what you're about to see. Jesus is now on the road with his disciples to Jerusalem. Now, I've already told you that this is the turning point in Mark where Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem to do what? To die, to suffer as a sacrifice for sins. And so here's what happens. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So they're trailing behind him. They're amazed and those who followed are afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him. In case they had forgotten a chapter ago, he wants to remind them, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what it means, fellas. Pay close attention. He says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. And not only that, they're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. Remember, Pontius Pilate is the one who actually decreed, okay, we'll whip him, we'll flog him, and we'll, we'll let him be crucified. Verse 34, they're going to mock him first. You know, they're going to spit on his face. They're going to flog him, kill him, and after three days, he will rise. All right, Jesus now lays the groundwork. Gentlemen, here's what's going to happen to me. Remember that I told you this. I'm going to be humiliated in just a few short days, a few short weeks, actually. Here's what's going to happen. Okay, that's the background. Now, at this point, if you're a disciple, you might ask some questions. Jesus, what do you mean by this? Tell us more. What is this suffering supposed to look like? Is there any way we can help? Can we pray for you? Was this, how do we understand this? They didn't do this. Instead, what happens next is revolting and terrible. You ready for it? Here it goes. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Pause there for a second. Let me just give you a, a tip. And as a parent and you guys as friends and family and, and brothers and sisters, don't ever use this. This never works. <laughs> hey, uh, Pastor Mike, I'd like for you to give me whatever I'm about to ask of you. <laughs> okay, whatever you want, Pastor. What do you want? It doesn't work. I've tried it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. He, he kicked me out of his office. It was a very weird situation. This doesn't work. And the disciples are soon going to learn this, but think about what kind of mentality asked that question. I mean, have you ever tried this on your parents? The disciples are coming to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question. Please just say, yeah, Give, sign the blank check. I'll tell you what to put inside after you sign it. He's wise, and so he's not going to do that. So he says to them, verse 36, just tell me, what do you want me to do for you? What are you, what are you asking for? Verse 37, they said to him, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Okay, pause here for a moment and just kind of let that settle. Jesus just said, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, and then I'm going to rise again the third day. And they're saying, hey, thanks for that. Can I sit on your right hand and this other guy on your left so we can sit at your glory together? What a great time that'll be. And these guys, remember who this is. Who, who's asking the question? Two guys, James and John. Who are the closest confidants of Jesus' life? Peter, James, and John. That's right. So there's three close people to Jesus. Two of those close people come in and they say, Jesus, we want to be on your right and left hand in your power. We know you're going to be glorified. We don't know when necessarily, but we know it's going to happen. Please let us reign with you. We want to rule with you. We want to be the bee's knees. We want to be the highest officials. Now, there's several problems with this. Obviously, they just forgot what Jesus spoke moments ago. But beyond that, there's Peter, James, and John. What happens to Peter in this equation? Why does Peter get you know, the boot? Can Peter at least sit behind Jesus, maybe? Is there any room for him? These guys have nothing to do with Peter. They're only thinking about themselves. Now, here's the thing. James and John are the sons of who? Zebedee. They're related. And in fact, they are the sons not only of Zebedee, but they're also the sons of Salome. Salome. That's a name you may not remember. But here's the thing. I'll just give you the, the, the short of it. These guys uh, may be related to Jesus through Salome, their mother, who might be the cousin of Mary. Could be there. So, so this could be a family affair. They might be drawing on the family, of, the family strings and saying, hey, we're family here. Well, you know, blood runs thicker than water, as they say, Jesus. Let us be with you. We want to rule with you. And Peter, Peter can figure his own thing out, but we want to rule with you. Put us together. In fact, let me just also say this. Salome is the one who actually asked the question. They had their mom ask Jesus for them. Ma, Matthew tells us the account in his parallel story. Matthew, comes to, uh, Matthew tells us that Salome came to Jesus and said, teacher, I want you to do for me whatever I ask, and it's on behalf of my sons. And of course, the sons, maybe they're like, yeah, tell them, mom. And, and mom asks him, hey, will you please let my sons rule and reign with you? And Jesus then responds as he does in this passage. But the important thing to see about this is if you had to guess, would you call this pride? I think none of us is confused by that. It's the worst kind of pride to boot because these guys had just heard Jesus say, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, hey, cool. Can I rule with you? <laughs> I'm concerned about your, you know, your suffering and everything, but I really want to rule with you. The point for us should be pretty easy. I know it's so easy for us to see it in others, but I really want us to be able to see it in ourselves. And that's really to be able to see in yourself pride and know how to deal with it. We're going to spend a lot of time on this first point. So let's put it down like this. Identify and destroy your pride. And I kind of tongue-in-cheek put an additional parenthetical to this point, although it's not officially part of the point. I'll give it to you anyway. Identify and destroy your pride, parenthetical, before it destroys you. 
There's a certain sense of pride that some of us have that we know, we kind of, we, we know about it, we manage it. Uh, but for the, for the most part, I don't think any of us feel like we're blinded by it. And that's one of the best tricks of pride. It may make you feel like you don't struggle with it. Kind of gets me to thinking about some of the, some of the people that I saw up here on American Idol. I, I loved watching American Idol for a season, not a long time. But I was always interested in the people that went on American Idol and they were really, really bad. I mean, just terrible vocalists. You know, he's like, who, who, how were you there? Who, how many hurdles did you have to jump of people telling you you were amazing before you got there? And the really funny ones were when Simon Cowell would be like, you're terrible. And they'd be like, I, I know I can sing. I'm amazing. And they're like, well, who told you you could sing? My mom? You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> I didn't count. These guys were terrible vocalists, terrible vocalists. And yet in all of the world, no one was willing to tell them, or if they did, they ignored them, that they were bad. There are studies that talk about some of this, and they, there's a name for this now. These guys named it after two researchers who started looking into why people go on American Idol who can't sing. And of course, one of the reasons why is they want their, you know, 15 minutes of fame. It's funny for a little bit. But there's a whole different class of people who honestly believe that they're good at singing. And so these researchers ask, well, why is that the case? It's interesting, and I'll spare you the gory details of the article, but the very last line of the article, how do you avoid it? They're identifying pride as the singular issue that gets people to that place where they're willing to embarrass themselves on national television just so they can you know, sing, even though they obviously can't. How do you avoid that kind, of combi- uh, that, kind of, that kind of humiliation? It's a combination of humility and openness to critical feedback. So these guys say is the, these researchers called uh, the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a, it's a bias that makes us feel like we're better than we actually are. And this isn't all of their fault. In fact, if you just think about the world around you guys, just be honest for a moment here. Think about the world around you and how it tells you to think about yourself. Rarely is there ever anyone who's saying to you, hey, there's a lot you need to work on. You need to change because you're not perfect. You're broken. You need to change. You need to, you need to conform to something better than yourself, your own standards. But today, you're told by your teachers and by, uh, by celebrities and by politicians, you are amazing. You're perfect just the way you are. Hashtag Bruno Mars. You know, you're, you're amazing in every way possible. You shouldn't change. In fact, who should change is not you, but the society around you. Your pastors and the people around you and your parents that tell you that you're not, you're not right, they're wrong. And in fact, you should embrace you. You should be you. And you should blossom to be the you that you were meant to be. And if anyone doesn't like that, well, theirs is the problem, not yours. What kind of pride are we fostering amongst ourselves? Or that's the mentality, and we're all okay with that. In fact, it feels good to say I'm amazing, I like me, I should be bold about who I am, and there is a certain sense of that that's kind of true, which is what makes it so devious, because God did make you as you did, as he did, and you are who you are, that's what God made you to be. But there's not a sense in which we should boast about that and feel like we're, you know, uh, welling up our chest of like, how amazing I am. What a gift to to creation that I am. I'm amazing, I'm beautiful, I'm intellectual, whatever, whatever, whatever. Love, I love me, I'm worth it, I'm enough. You shouldn't love you. The Bible says that love of self is actually called pride. You're not worth it. You're worthy of God's wrath. You're not amazing. You're broken. Those are the kind of things that we have to think about when we talk about pride. So let's, let's do a quick diagnostic here. I want to ask you some questions. Actually, on a more, more than that, I actually want to give you scenarios about what pride would look like in your life. Because for most of us, I think we know pride's a bad thing, but we may not so quickly identify where it's taking place, where pride is actually manifesting. Now, what is pride? Let me just offer you this short, easy definition. I think pride is just a me-focused, me-first mentality. And I think the emphasis would be on the me-focused. It's about me. I'm, a, I'm all about me. 
I'm the most important here. Now, whether or not you know this, there's actually a good use of pride in the Bible. There is good pride. The, the word is actually the same underlying word that the Bible uses to describe a good type of pride. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, he says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. Paul's pride was not in his own selfish ambition. His pride was in the people that he served. And that's to say, guys, I, I can relate to this. Sometimes I'll see you guys do things or say things or post things, and I'm like, oh, I, I'm proud of that. I love seeing some of the good and godly fruits that manifest in your life. I know I can't take credit for that, but I do have pride when I see you guys do things that honor God. And I think it's what Paul is saying about his Corinthian church. There's a sense of pride that comes with that, and that's a good pride. It's not pride in me. It's not saying I'm responsible for who you are. It's saying I'm so grateful and thankful to God for what's happening in your lives, and I'm proud of you, even though it's not really you, you. It's saying I'm grateful to God for you. There's good pride. Obviously, there's bad pride, and that's the pride we all know about. Jot down these two references, although we're not going to go through them. Romans 1, 30 and 31, and then 2 Timothy 3, 2. Once again, Romans 1, 30 and 31, and 2 Timothy 3, 2. Both of those passages talk about how um, there is a sense of haughtiness and boastfulness, pride and arrogance that is going to be characteristic of people who are in bondage to sin and what it will look like in the last days. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 3 is all about. In the last days, people are going to be lovers of themselves. Doesn't that sound like what we're telling people to do today? Hey, love yourself. You first. You only. doesn't matter what people think about you. If they're telling you to change, they're the problem, not you. You first. Lovers of themselves. Proud and arrogant. That's characteristic of those who are proud. And also, again, Paul is telling us this is what it's going to look like in the last days, which I think we're in. Let me first define for you what it's, what, it, what it's not then before we talk about what it is. Pride is not being the actual best in your field. Someone's going to be the best, and I pray that it would be a Christian. Maybe you're really good at calculus. Maybe you're exceptional at sports. Maybe you're a great vocalist. If you're striving to be the best, hey, praise God, do that. That's not pride. That's working hard for the glory of God. Pride is not being the actual best. Some, so, someone's going to have to be the champion. Someone's going to have to be first place. It might as well be a believer who's doing it, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. You should aim to be the best at whatever it is you're doing. That's not pride. It can turn into pride, obviously, but that's not pride in and of itself. Pride is also not affirming where God has gifted you. A lot of you guys I would be terrified if I put you on this stage and said, hey, preach. <laughs> Some of you guys would welcome that. And maybe you're gifted with speaking abilities that would maybe put you in a position to have to do this one day. Um, some of you are gifted musically. Again, there's a variety of gifts. And, and Paul doesn't say, don't affirm where God has gifted you. He just says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't think that you're so amazing that there's no one who's better than you or smarter than you or more athletically gifted than you. He's just saying, think of yourself with sober judgment. Pride is not affirming where God has gifted you. What then is Pride. I have a long list of scenarios that I want to work you through because I think it's important that you see it in your life before you're convinced that you have to destroy it. You ready? Put, put on your seatbelt. This one, not this one. This is, the, this is the safer one. Put that one on. Here goes. Pride looks like living as if you're the most important person in the room or the kitchen or the locker room or the school room or the whatever room. Pride is acting like you're the most important person in the room, which looks like this then. Your preferences become what is most important. You walk into a room, it's too hot. We should lower the temperature. Or it's too cold. We should raise the temperature. Why? Because my preferences matter most. 
You walk into a room and you suddenly think, okay, this isn't what I like. It's not clean enough for me or it's too dirty for me or whatever it is. Your preferences become primary. You walk into your family room and things aren't the way that they should be. Do you try to help out? No, your preferences are what matter. You're hoping someone else does this. Your preferences are most important. Also, here's another one. Seeking to bring others' attention to yourself for their approval, praise, and adoration. Seeking to bring others' attention to yourself for their approval, praise, and adoration. This is that person who's fishing for compliments. You know that person? They might accidentally, they might kind of drop hints, like breadcrumbs, if, as it were, to say, man, I, I was working really hard. I was up till, you know, 3 a.m. last night working on my homework for IB, or I was doing 5,000 push-ups, or, you know, I was, that, that person who's dropping things for you to pick up and say, oh, that's so cool of you. You're amazing. I can't believe you did that. It's that person who's wanting you to compliment them, and they want you to know that they're doing that, but they're trying to do it subtly. Sometimes it may come, it may come across as just their, it's the humble brag. You've heard of that person, right? Man, I just, I just gave a lot of money to Compass 2020. I'm going to be, you know, so I'm going to be wearing, you know, the same clothes for the next three years. I'm basically broke after all the money I gave, you know, that person, that person. Humble brag, the, the kind of person who's wanting you to compliment them. Or this kind of looks, also looks like dressing in a certain way or undressing in a certain way. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spectrum of this, obviously. But the way that you dress obviously communicates to people what your values are. Whether or not you know that, that's the truth. What you dress determines how people think that you value. And so for some people, let's just, let's just use an imaginary person. Let's say that you're the ripped dude. You've got muscles upon muscles upon muscles. You know, you're the Dave Averill. You know, you're, the, you're that guy. You're ripped. You go, to the, you go to the beach, and you're the first one to take off your shirt because you want people to know, right? You, know, you don't want to cover yourself. You want to make sure that people know. And so you take off your shirt first, and when you're asking for directions, you're doing this, you know, and you're picking up your soda like this. And you're trying to make sure that people know that you got, you got the, the goods. It's pride. I want people to look at you and admire you, maybe even create some envy. You're dressing in a certain way or undressing in a certain way. Ladies, I'm sure you've talked to your leaders about this, but you know that the way that you dress can sometimes command attention of guys that isn't the most, let's just say, helpful attention for you or for them. Here's another one. Pride can also be manifested in not following the instructions of your authorities. Your teacher tells you to do something, your parents tell you to do something, your your pastor tells you to do something. I know that's self-serving, but just follow me for a second. Let's say your parent tells you, hey, I'd like for you to clean the kitchen before you go to that thing tonight. And you say, oh, mom, it's almost time. I got to go. Can I do it later? Or better yet, here's what, here's what you might say. I'll do it later. I'll do it when I get back. I'll do it tomorrow. Start bargaining and start trying to say, oh, I want to do this instead. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with saying, can I do this differently? But here's the thing. When you're pushing back and saying, no, mom, no, dad, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. What do you call that? That's pride. Teacher says, I want you to not put your, I don't, put your phone away. Well, I got this really important thing. Who are you to tell me what to do? I got to do this thing. My, my mom told me to do this other thing. You're going to ignore your, your authorities because here's, here's what you're essentially saying. I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. That's what pride looks like. Here's another one. Pride is also acting like you're self-made, that you are the one who brought yourself to this point. 
you, you look the way you do because you've cultivated something inherently inside you that made you look this way. You're, 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 you're as wealthy as you are because there's something valuable about you internally that made you wealthy. Uh, in fact, if you're a Christian, all of us are aware that Christians are not self-made. We're products of grace. None of us has room to boast. And that's the, that's the heart of the gospel. No one has room to boast. None of us are self-made. Even if you are, let's say you, you're really good at math. You work really hard. You study hard. You stay up late in the night. You wake up early in the morning. And you're reviewing when everyone else is relaxing. Let's say you're that person. Even if you've worked hard to do that, who's the one who gave you the mind to do that? Who's the one who's encouraging you that way? Who's the one who's providing the fuel for you to do that? That's God. None of us is self-made. Whenever we think we are, that's when our pride is manifesting. Here's another one. Pride is not caring about the lives of others. Pride is not caring about the lives of others. Let's just say your friend comes to you. Cameron says, hey, my, my cat died. I'm not going to make any jokes at this point. <laughs> my cat died. You might have to pretend to care. I mean, it's not just because it's a cat, but you might, you might have to pretend to care because there's bad news and you don't really care much about Cameron care much about his life to really empathize with him or sympathize with him. Or let's go a step further. You know, my mom got in an accident. It's a critical condition. Oh, man. You might say, oh, I'm really sorry for you. But do you really care? Do you really honestly care for them? Is, that, is there honestly something in your heart that's welling up with, with tender compassion for that person and their, and their mom? You might have to pretend to care because you honestly don't. You're so self-absorbed. You're so caught up in your own world that when something bad happens to someone else, you're not concerned about them because it didn't happen to you. Not caring about the lives of others is an element of pride. Another element of pride is critically judging others while excusing yourself. Critically judging others while excusing yourself. There's someone who's always late, and they're late all the time, and the reason why is because they're a bad person. They're no good. But when you're late, oh, it's because I had this thing going on. You're making excuses for yourself that helps you justify why you're not as bad as the next guy. You can do the same exact bad thing, and when you look at them, you'll make a critical judgment about their self-worth while you look at yourself and say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm just, you know, I'm misunderstood. The situation called for this. I had to do this. Pride is giving yourself the, you know, the, the easy out, but when you look at others, you say, well, that person's just a big jerk. They cut me off. They, you know, their order was super ridiculous, and they made it really hard for us, and they're not thinking about anyone else. They're so selfish, these jerks, these idiots, these blah, 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 blah. But when you go to that place, and you do that thing, and you do the same thing, it's like, well, of course I do this. I'm me. Pride is impatient, being impatient and irritated with the shortcomings or differences of others. Pride is being impatient and irritated with the shortcomings or differences of others. One time I was in the passenger seat of a car. Someone was driving and started asking questions about, like, I'm trying to get them to my place, right? I'm saying, well, why'd you turn that way? Well, the GPS said this. And I said, well, you should go that way instead. Should, this, this way is the better way. And they're, they're following the GPS. And it's not wrong. They're going to eventually get me to where I belong, but they're making different. And, they, you know, the, the, the air conditioning was too warm. It wasn't cool enough. Their, their driving was, I was looking at the speedometer. I'm like, why are you driving 35 into 45, bro? Like, I'm upset by this. Like, what are you doing wasting our time? Go. Just, I mean, I want to hit the gas for them, you know? Do it. Irritated and impatient with people that have differences or even shortcomings. You, can go, you know that person, right, who's just 
a little off. They say things to you, and you're like, I don't know if you really, if we're tracking around the different page here. Pride is saying, I don't like you. You irritate me. You annoy me. I'm going to go over here because you're just too much effort for me to deal with. I'd rather talk to this person who's way easier. You're just an obstacle to my happiness, and therefore, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with you. You're irritable. You're impatient with people that aren't like you. And really, the underlying reason for that is because you should do things my way. My way is the only right way. Your way is broken. You should be more like me and less like yourself, and you'd be better off in life. Pride also looks like envying others' success, envying others' money, envying others' looks, envying others' privileges. So if you look around in this room here, there's a variety of uh, social statuses, a variety of beauty, a variety of athleticism, a variety of intelligence. There's, all of us have been given different gifts of God. And, and one of the ways that pride works itself out is when you look at that girl and you say, man, she's really pretty. I'm not as pretty as she is. Man, I, I wish I was as pretty as she is. That could be, that could be innocent. It could be innocent. But often it's like, I should be as pretty as that. I want, I want to be prettier. Why is she so much more popular than I am? I'm a better person than she is. Guys, this is also for you. You're looking at that guy who has that really nice sports car because his family's loaded and they give him this really nice sports car. And he's a big jerk. Like, he doesn't deserve that. I should get that. I would treat that car way better. I'd be a much better son than him. In fact, his parents should adopt me and get rid of him. I'd be a better son. It's, it's envying other people's position in life that God has graciously bestowed. Like, most of you guys know, I, I talked to you, I, some, some of my life, not all of it, I was raised on food stamps. I was the poor kid. I, I wore the same clothes at school, and, and that was tough because people noticed. I noticed. I mean, it was, it was just that situation. And I'd look at other kids across the hallway who were good-looking, always had a fresh cut, had all the ladies around them, and I'm like, man, why can't that be me? That's the nature of pride. We start envying other people and looking at what they have and saying, why don't I have that? I should have that. They're better than I am, but they shouldn't be. I should be better than they are. Envying other success, money, looks, privileges. Pride is also when you're unwilling to forgive. You holding a grudge with anybody? That's pride. Your unwillingness to forgive says in your heart, I would never do that. They don't deserve my forgiveness. I don't care that God has forgiven me of my sin. I'm not forgiving them of theirs. You don't understand the gospel. And furthermore, your heart is full of pride if you ever come to the place when you're unwilling to forgive someone who's offended you. Pride is being unwilling to forgive someone. I would never do that. Let me, uh, let me draw a slightly different example of pride here before we move on. I know I'm, I'm going really long on this point. I promised you the other points are short. Pride is also self-loathing, pity, and hatred of your own faults. So you might be the person who says, I'm not any of those things. In fact, I'm the opposite. I say to myself, I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'll never have any friends. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm that person who hates me. Is that pride? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because essentially, when you start demeaning yourself that way, you're the person who's saying to God, you made a mistake, God. I wouldn't have done this to me. I would have done differently if I were in charge. I'd make myself taller. I'd make myself smarter. I'd make myself more attractive. I'd make myself more athletic. God, you're wrong on this. I'm right. That's pride too. And in fact, People who are committing suicide, or at least contemplating that, are arrogantly in their own heart saying, the world would be better without me. Oh, really? Because God put you here. You're smarter than God? You're, you're, you're going to take your life because you know better than God? You think there's no redeeming value in your pain, and therefore you're going to excuse yourself from life because you think that's a better decision than God? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were here. You're the, you're the most important person in the, in the room. You're so smart. You're so intelligent. You know better than God. 
Do you see how pride can work itself out in all of these arenas? How are you doing with this? Do you see pride in your life? If so, we ought, to, we ought to pay attention to these things because no one likes the arrogant jerk. Let's just be honest with that for the first point. No one likes the arrogant jerk. And by the way, God hates your pride more than you because pride attempts to overthrow God. Pride attempts to be God. Pride attempts to glorify himself. Pride pretends as if God isn't in control, that he can't take care of you, that he can't coordinate your life. Pride pretends like you are the one who's responsible for all these things. Pride is bad for a host of reasons. Even the, even the world knows that pride is bad. Why does it matter? Well, because we know that God hates it, we hate it, humanity is, is made worse because of it. How then do we get rid of it? What's the extermination process for pride? Rapid fire, here we go. If you're going to destroy pride, the first thing you got to know is the gospel. You need to rehearse the gospel. Christian, especially you. If you're a Christian and you think, I already know the gospel, I'm saved, doesn't matter. You need the gospel day after day because you need to realize that you have so much further to go. You're not arrived yet. If you're not a Christian, you need to know the gospel especially. You need to hear it because you need to be saved by it and let God humble your heart. Not only that, you need to practice preferring others, practicing it more than just saying, hey, where do you want to eat? Okay, let's go there. It's, it's about having a lifestyle of looking at people around you and saying, how can I bless, fill in the blank? How can I be a blessing to my friends? Oh, look at that person sitting alone. I want to talk to them. I want to be friendly to them, make sure that they know that they're loved, even if they don't necessarily click with me. I want to make sure, how can I best love and support my leader? How can I best love and support my parents? How can I serve other people? How can I become outward focused instead of inwardly all about me all the time? Remember, me focused, me first. I want to destroy that idol in my heart. Paul says that you should practice preferring others as the Christian community. If you're a believer, this ought to characterize your life. You also should pray to see it and repent of it. We talked about at the beginning, it's hard for us to see pride in our own lives. It's, uh, but it's a gift of God. When we say, God, search me and know me. By the way, if you pray that, I need to warn you, it's going to hurt. <laughs> you pray to God, God, show me my pride, just be prepared, okay? Let me just tell you, you pray, show me my pride, God, so I can repent of it, you better be prepared to get hurt a little. God's going to show it to you because he's faithful and you're not going to like what you see. But when you ask God and he answers, repent of it. God, I see it. Please help me to, to no longer feel this way, to no longer live this way. Lastly, you need help. You need friends in your life who are going to be able to say, hey, I, I want to point something out to you. I could be wrong about this, but it looks like you were exercising pride here. That's what I was talking about pride. It looks like you were being a proud person in this moment. And then you say, instead of defending yourself, you say, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I'm going to pray about that and see if that is something I need to work on. You need to work on destroying your pride. Otherwise, your pride will destroy you. Jesus is so gracious about this because he doesn't just bash his disciples on the head. In fact, what he does is he says to them, you don't even know what you guys are asking. You guys want to sit on my right and my left? You don't know what you're asking for. This is a big deal. In fact, he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? He's saying, I'm about to drink the cup of God's wrath. I'm going to suffer and die for humanity. I'm going to be overwhelmed, submerged with torment, with wrath, with terror. Is that what you want? Is that, or is that something you can do? And of course, this, the, the answer should be no, but that's not what they say. And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> we can do this. Bring it on, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, all right, guys, you don't know what you're talking about, but let me just say this. The cup that I drink, you're going to drink. And the baptism that I'm baptized, you're going to be baptized too. He's not saying they're going to suffer and die for humanity. He's saying you guys are going to suffer. Remember John, the end of his life? He was persecuted under the Roman government. He was the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
James, he's going to die in the book of Acts. He's the first one to die under Herod. He's the first Christian. I mean, he's, he's one of the people to die, and he's saying, you guys are going to suffer too. Hey, it's coming. And in fact, I think if you can summarize what he's trying to do here is he, if you want to pursue greatness, guys, understand it's going to be a cross before a crown. He says, but sit at my right hand, my left hand, not mine to grant. But for those whom it is prepared, God knows what he's going to do. And he's going to exalt you in his due time. But before that, recognize it's going to hurt. The disciples look at this and say, man, why did you guys do this first? I wanted to talk to Jesus about sitting on his right and left hand. What makes you guys so special? Jesus redirects them. Expect a cross before a crown. Expect it to be harder before it's easier. Expect the life to be suffering before you have a life of glory and of honor and of privilege. And God may make some of you guys experience that in this life. You might be the CEO. You might be a founder of a great company, become a trillionaire. That'd be great, but don't expect that. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, Jesus is telling us you need to prepare because suffering comes before the crowning. It is Christmas season. I don't care what Evan says. And therefore, it means that it is a season of the nutcracker. I'm not a big ballet fan. I won't go to see ballet unless one of you guys is in it. And then in which case, I'll do my best to really enjoy it. And I have enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy seeing it. <laughs> but ballet is just not my thing. And I expect for most people in here, it's probably not yours either. But I can appreciate the gracefulness with which they dance. When they're really good, you can, you can see it. They move really well. They got really strong muscles. That's how I as a guy see them. I don't know, they're really strong, really strong body control. In fact, if you look at their feet, you'll notice that their feet are basically standing like just straight up on the floor. I've always been amazed by that. I've always been amazed that they have such strength that they can put their foot like all the way up like that and, and just stand on the tippy toes. And then, not only that, but then they're twirling and floating and doing all these weird girly things that I love seeing. But then I found out they're cheating. They have this block of wood in their shoe that helps them with this. So then I tried a shoe on. It didn't work. It was still hard. But, but here, when you see them do these amazing feats, you often don't see the fact that their feats are actually really hurting. <laughs> their amazing feats have amazingly hurt feats that go along with this. Not everybody. Not everyone has a foot like this, right? I mean, it's not, not everybody, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do because they're putting in hard work. This is a, a pretty common principle. You don't get an award just for showing up in ballet. You've got to work hard for this. You pay the price for greatness even in this life. Cross before a crown, pain before gain, which means that in this life, it's going to hurt. This life is going to hurt. You want to get to exaltation and glory? Great, Jesus is for that. But understand that in this life, it's going to cost you a lot. It's going to be painful. In fact, let's start with this. Holiness hurts. Holiness hurts. Philippians chapter 2 Paul says to the, the church, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say chill out, entertain out, hang out, work out, gymnasio, to, to, to exercise yourself unto godliness. Holiness hurts. And furthermore, if you want to get into it, self-denial hurts. Think about this for the sake of humility. When Jesus is telling them, hey, don't wor worry about being great uh, here and now, but the there and then, he's telling them to humble themselves to prefer others, to think about them and say, what, what, what do my brothers and sisters need? What do my family need? How can I best serve and support them instead of being focused on myself? That's going to hurt. It's going to cost you something. And lastly, Jesus points to them saying, you're going to die. Yes, you guys are going to drink the cup. You're, you're going to be baptized with pain, with suffering, and you're ultimately going to die. So persecution hurts. Self-denial hurts. Holiness hurts. This life will hurt. And I think that's partly what Jesus is getting at here. But at the end of it, Jesus says to his disciples, but the Father has prepared people to sit on his right and his left hand. I started thinking to myself, well, who's that going to be then? Because he doesn't tell them it's you guys. He doesn't tell them who it is. He just says, who the Father has prepared, like it's in his hands. It's not mine. I think, well, is it Peter and Paul maybe? Is it, uh, is it Moses and, and Elijah? Who's sitting at Jesus' right and left hand? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know that. 
But what we need to trust is that God is the one who's going to reward. And in his time and in his way, when you serve, there's a greatness to be had later on. You don't get to determine that time frame. God himself is, says, uh, is the one who sets the date of when you're actually going to receive some kind of glory and honor. And, and just to give you a sense of what this is then, you need to think about what, what, what Jesus says in Mark chapter 941. Mark 941, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Think about this. If I'm coughing on stage and you bring me a water bottle, God is paying attention to that. And he's saying, I'm going to reward you for that. That's not insignificant. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, if I'm ch- choking up here and I get a drink of water, I say, oh, thank you very much. I'll put it down. No, I'm not going to think about that for the rest of the day probably. But God is saying, I'm not going to forget that. When you serve someone in my name, I'm not going to forget even the smallest things that you do on my behalf. You want to take comfort in that and say, that's worth my humility. It might be demeaning of me to go and hand a cup of water to somebody, but for the sake of God and for the sake of my future exaltation, I can do that and I can be excited about that. Cross before a crown. Life is going to hurt, but God is faithful to reward. These last few verses, Jesus radically reorients them and redefines what true greatness is. He says this, Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Let me just pause here for a second and point you to the fact that today there are professional business books that say you should, actually, you should be the kind of servant leader that, that organizations thrive after. There's books like Good to Great by Jim Collins, and there's other books that are kind of derivatives of that that have the, the same essential purpose to say, if you want to be a great leader, you've got to be a servant leader. But understand that that's not what was happening here. Jesus is the one who introduces servant leadership. Before that, though, it was the Gentiles lorded over them. If you're in charge, everyone knows you're in charge. No one expects you to humble yourself. Everyone expects you to exalt yourself because you're in charge. He says, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's expected. That's how people act. Jesus enters the scene and says, but it shall not be so among you. Why? Well, because whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's, he's turning tables upside down, turning them around, saying there's not the way to think about it. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's saying, you want to be great? Fantastic. Be great. But here's what it really looks like, guys. It means serving others. By the way, uh, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He first came to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this life, it's going to be loss. It's going to hurt. It's going to be demeaning sometimes, but that's what the ultimate win is. In fact, put it this way, point number three, take the L to get the true dub. You want to learn how to be a great person? Take the loss. In this life, count it all as loss, Paul would say, because you're going to get the ultimate dub in the next life. Who are the greatest, the most famous athletes of our time right now? I thought of three, just off the top of my head. And the first one I thought of was Tom Brady, who will probably be in the Super Bowl again this year. He's got a net worth of $580 million, several uh, Super Bowl rings. The guy's unstoppable. He's a beast. He's amazing at what he does. Another guy, I don't know as much about him, but LeBron James. He's got a net worth of $450 million. He's great. People know him. He's, he's, I think he was drafted right out of high school. The guy's well-known. And he's, he's doing really well. Another guy, uh, Tiger Woods, he's got a net worth of $800 million. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the most winningest golfers in the world or whoever. I don't know. The most, winningest is a word, right? Someone back me up on this. No. You're just in high school. You don't know nothing. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Are these men the greatest in God's eyes? 
are these men the greatest in God's eyes? Who has the greatest spiritual net worth? That's what I want to know. Who's got the greatest spiritual net worth? In our lifetime, in our world, we're telling people these are the greatest ever, and here's millions of dollars to prove it. We think you're so great. Here's millions. Here's endorsements. Here's shoe deals. Here's everything we have to give because you're amazing. But in God's eyes, he's saying it's going to be the very opposite. In the next life, the greatest will be those who are the least, who are serving faithfully, who are serving sacrificially. In fact, to be truly great, they don't wait to be asked to serve. They go out of their way to do what is necessary in order to love others. They show up early to set up. They stay late to tear down. They go home. They do the dishes without being asked. They vacuum. They turn off the lights because they know dad hates it when the lights are left on. They're the kind of people who are paying attention to the world around them and saying, how can I best serve? It's not about me. It's about King Jesus. And I want to be great in his kingdom, in his eyes. There's a, there's a verse that I love pointing to. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection that is warmth. And here's the word I love, outdo Go beyond. Outdo one another in showing honor. Make it a competition. Who can do more to honor the other person or the other persons around you? To be truly great, don't wait to be asked to serve. And then wherever you are, serve greatly where you serve best. Serve greatly where you serve best. I'm probably not going to ask Ian Pence to only stack chairs and to stop leading us in worship. That don't make sense. But if he continues to do worship, I'm going to say, hey, dude, give it the best you got. Every time you lead worship, it should be as if you're trying to create a masterpiece because we're not doing it for us, we're doing it for King Jesus. Whatever God has given you to do, wherever you're serving, give it your very best. Use what you have that you're really good at to serve the church with excellence. What natural gifts and inclinations has God given you? Develop that raw talent into something that the church can use to build up the body of Christ. You techie? Good. Do the tech team. You musician? Join the worship team. You got muscles? Help us move stuff and set up and tear things down. You got, you got leading skills? Maybe a campus club is on your horizon. You got, you really good at video and editing? We need a, we need a video crew. You're really good at social media? Take over the account. I don't want it. It's yours. Do it for us. You can, there are so many of you that are got that latent potential that are not using it or exercising it because you're like, oh, someone else will do it. Why not you? Serve greatly where you serve best. Serve at your highest capability wherever you can potentially serve. Ultimately, and here's the verse again. It's so good. Love one another, but lay affection out. Do one another showing honor. Here's the next verse. Verse, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy in what you do. Be fervent, zealous in spirit, serving the Lord. Can you say that you're serving that way right now? Honestly, in your head, answer the question. Are you serving fervently? Are you zealous in your service right now? In your head, don't answer out loud. If your answer is honest, you're probably thinking, I could do a lot better. And that's a good answer. That's a humble answer. That's a right answer. If you're saying, I'm serving to the best of my ability, praise God. I'm, I'm not throwing rocks at you. That's great. If that's what your answer is, fantastic. But for most of us, I think we could say, we could do better at this. I could do better outdoing others and showing honor. Ultimately, guys, what this means for us is that we are worshiping the greatness of Christ. You want some jet fuel to help you serve excellently, to help you love more sacrificially? Think about the beauty, the glory, the majesty of King Jesus dying on, on the cross in your place, who said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that doesn't motivate and inspire you, nothing will. You may not understand the gospel. That's, that's enough for a believer to say, I can do more, I can do better. This is all the motivation you need. Be found in worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To be great in the kingdom will mean great humility, great suffering, and great service. Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. 
but you have to know that he was also knocked down. Even the greatest in this life are going to be knocked down at the majesty and glory of Christ. For those of you who seek true greatness, may your heart be directed toward loving King Jesus and serving him in great ways in this life and thus experience the honor and the glory that you really want in the next life. That's what it looks like to be truly great. Let's pray.